pray, and we just have a sweet time together. And that's happening next week. And so just to over-communicate, if you come at 9 a.m., this isn't going to be happening. If you come at 10, which is what the announcement said, you might have missed 10 a.m. here. We're going to have potluck. You can sign up through our Church Center app or on our website. Uh, bring whatever you want to bring. We'll have all the treats and have a sweet time together. So that's next Sunday. What time are we showing up? 10 a.m. next Sunday. Very good, very good. We're in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there, we'll be there this morning. Uh, I'll begin by taking us back to middle school lit class. And, and those classes, we were introduced to poets and playwrights. Uh, I never enjoyed English class, and so I've found that my later years of life have caused me to uh, appreciate what I should have uh, sought to pursue in those years. But nonetheless, we, enter, we, were, we met uh, individuals like Homer, who wrote the Iliad or Odyssey, had Odysseus, and this adventure from the Trojan War, and all these things that he experienced. We have Shakespeare and Hamlet. Hamlet was told by his father to kill his uncle, and it was this tragedy and all these things that happened within these stories. And, you know, we learn about the playwrights and study them and their iconic works that we read to this day. And one common denominator in these books and ones like them and playwrights and these types of literature are that Homer wrote Odysseus to be the main character. Shakespeare wrote uh, Hamlet to be the main character. The design was never for them to write themselves into their own story. That's not the way it worked. That's not the way it typically write, works when it comes to writing literature. And what we find within the story of Scripture is, is different than what Shakespeare did and different than what uh, Homer did. And it's this, that God, he uh, is the author of humanity and the creator of all things good and the creator of all things that are beautiful and we watch in this story as he sees his prized creation riot and rebel against him, bringing devastation to everything good and everything beautiful. And in return, the author and the creator does what no playwright would do. He writes himself into our story. He becomes the main character. He becomes the hero. And it makes this story different than any other story. And this is what John is showcasing in the Gospel of John that we started last week, that we're going to be continuing through this teaching series into the fall and spring of next year. Uh, I introduced the Gospel of John last week with the hope of John, where in John 20, verse 31, he kind of gives the synopsis of why he wrote this Gospel. And he says, I, I write this to you that you would believe and then believing you'd have life in his name. And so this belief is not just a doorway we walk through. It's the ground that we stand on. It's a believing on Jesus. For some, it's believing for the first time. And for the others of us, it's learning in this series to reset and believe again. To go back to that simple faith where life might have gotten complicated. And going back to the simplicity of Jesus. And so over the next several weeks, we're doing this mini-series within John, John 1 through 5, and we're calling it Come and See, and we're going to get the understanding for why it's called that this morning. In the text this morning, we're going to meet two primary characters. We're going to meet John the Baptizer. Again, he's not the one who wrote the gospel. For those that care, it's a different John. John uh, is uh, the beloved one that's a disciple, and, but the, the character we meet this morning is John the Baptizer. And then secondly, we meet 
Nathaniel. And each of them are going to give a declaration that I want to spend time on this morning. So we're going to meet John the Baptizer and Nathaniel. So first, let's meet John the Baptizer. We first meet this character in the, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you recall, in Advent series in the past, um, we might spend time talking about this character. This guy, John, was related to Jesus because their moms were relatives. We have Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the baptizer, and then we have Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. And so Elizabeth was older in age. She was beyond the age of being able to be with a child. She had been barren all of her life and her husband was a priest, and so he goes into the temple for something, and he encounters an angel. And the angel tells him that he's going to have a child. And he gives the reasons for why he's going to have this child. And we're going to pick that up in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. It says this. This is when Zechariah encountered this angel. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will, be, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the peop- for the make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he said, "I'm going to give you a son, and the son's going to prepare the way for this unique anointed one." And he goes on. He's like, "How can this be? We are old in age. There ain't no way." then my wife's going to get pregnant. Like, he's just having a real conversation with this angel. It's just this, this interesting moment that happens. And then verse 19, we read, And the angel said, or answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So he tells him, He's been sent from God, and, and we see that Zechariah goes mute for a few months until John's born because he didn't believe. And, and so John and Jesus grow up together. They have this cousin, brotherly cousin dynamic as they grow up together. We'll get back to that in a little bit. And then the Gospel of John picks up on this in John chapter 1, verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to wear, bear witness about the light. So we hear that this one was not the light, this one was not the Christ, this one was not the anointed one, this one was not the promised one, but he's a, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord to come. See, John's posture, John the baptizer's posture, all along was about preparing the way for this coming one. He didn't know who he was but preparing the way for this coming one to arrive. And his life's ambition was for that one to increase and for him to decrease. And so we see that John knew Jesus, but he didn't know who Jesus was. And so we pick up in John chapter 1, verse 29, and it says this. The next day he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said... Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. See, John knew who he was and John knew who he wasn't. He knew that he wasn't supposed to be the Messiah. He knew that he was the one who would go before. I mean, that could preach in and of itself that John knew his identity. He wasn't looking to the left or the right to try to figure out if he compared himself to the left or the right, but he was steady and knowing, I am one who's called to go before this anointed one to prepare the way before him. And so he mentions that he, he didn't know that this was who Jesus was. It was like his eyes were opened, that he saw Jesus in one way, and then his eyes, it's like the veil was lifted, and he was like, oh, this is not who I thought Jesus was. Now I know who you are. I mean, you can imagine all the times, oh, probably so much makes sense, because again, you got to get like, enter into the humanity of this moment. All the moments when John the baptizer is trying to get Jesus in trouble. And Jesus never gets in trouble. You can imagine how maddening that was for John the baptizer as one who was a cousin of Jesus. All the times where he wanted to do something mischievous and Jesus wouldn't. You can imagine that. And then all of a sudden this moment, it's like all those memories flood back and he, re- he realizes this is the promised one. And in this moment... When he realizes Jesus is the coming one, he says the statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who takes away, who takes up the the sin, the guilt of sin, the world meaning mankind. So what does this declaration mean? Behold the Lamb of God. I don't know when the last time you sacrificed an animal for your sin. Maybe that's not something you've done similar to me, but this was very common in this day of John the baptizer. This was very common in the first century Judaism and what they did in the temple to deal with their sin. This was common and pointed back to the Torah and the law of God. And it's more obvious in hindsight when we look at here in this text and we see that the Messiah would die, but in that day, that was not on the radar screen. Even John was arrested, John the baptizer, and, and he's confused on the idea that, so Jesus is going to suffer? I never thought that the Messiah would be one who would suffer before he would be glorified. But man, we see throughout the Old Testament this reminder of a lamb. That's why we can't throw out the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the backbone for the New Testament. It clarifies so much to us. Behold the Lamb of God. So what does that declaration mean? There's a couple things that we can reference. That Jesus is the lamb of Genesis 22. If you remember this story in Genesis earlier, Abraham, whose original name was Abram, he uh, encountered Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Abram that he was going to be a father of a nation. And all the nations would be blessed through him. 
The problem with this situation is that Abram didn't have any kids, similar to Elizabeth. And so years go by, turn into decades, and he does not have a child. And you can imagine if you get a promise like this without a child, it would be very confusing. But eventually, after decades, just a few pages in our Bible, but decades go by. We struggle with patience for weeks. Decades go by for Abram, whose name becomes Abraham and Sarah. And eventually, they're with child. And Isaac is born. And he grows up. And in Genesis 22, Abraham is told by God to sacrifice him. This is not a parenting strategy, okay? So don't read into this. This is very unique in this unique moment. And so in Genesis 22, uh, Yahweh tells Abraham to go to a mountain and sacrifice his son. And he goes obediently. It's this wild story where you're like in the moment, like holy cow, imagine what's going on with Abraham. Imagine what's going on with Isaac as there's no animal going with them. And he's like, where? What's going to happen here? A lot of confusion surely taking place. And eventually... Abraham, in obedience, he binds his son and he lays him, and his son's not a little kid, he's probably a teenager, and, and he's laying down, his father, what's going on? And then right before Abraham sacrifices his son, there's this ram who's a male lamb in the thickets, and it says that God provided for Abraham and he sacrificed this Lamb, and we see that God uh, was testing Abraham the whole time as the father of this nation. That Jesus is, is picturing that just as uh, the, the God made a way of provision, and it's pointing to the future day of Jesus. We see it again in the Passover story in Exodus. The Lamb, uh, we see that the Israelites were set free. One of the most iconic stories in the Jewish heritage of Passover. We see this moment where they are set free from Egypt, and right before they're set free, they, this tenth plague is given, and the, the plague is given to Moses. What's going to happen is that this night, there is going to be a death angel that goes through the land, and every firstborn son is going to die. But if you sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over your doorpost, you will be protected you trust in God's provision. That was for Jews and Gentiles, Jews and uh, Egyptians, that anyone who sacrificed a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost would be protected. That night it happened. All firstborn children, firstborn sons that did not have the blood of protection over them uh, were, were killed. And Pharaoh's son was one of those. And that was the final straw that let the people of Israel go. And this is, again, iconic moment where the Israelites every year remember the Passover lamb is God's provision. That's pointing to a future day when there were a greater Passover lamb would come, not just to free us from one night of death, but forevermore to, to vanquish death through his blood. We see it again in the guilt offering of number six where an animal sacrifice was atoned atone for the sin of the people. And then again, Jesus is the lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah promised. And we read this in Isaiah 53, 5-7. It says, but he, Isaiah, 700 plus years prior to the coming of Jesus, prophesied this about Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So John the baptizer says, Behold! The lamb that has been a shadow, a thread throughout the Old Testament. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, in the end of the 16th century when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, the story of tragedy and murder and revenge, we, we recognize that, again, Shakespeare didn't write himself into the story. And Tim Keller picks up on this, quoting C.S. Lewis. It says this, When a Russian cosmonaut returned from space and reported that he had not found God, C.S. Lewis responded that this was like Hamlet going into the attic of his castle and looking for Shakespeare. See, Shakespeare is the author but is nowhere to be found in Hamlet. And the story of the gospel is utterly surprising. It's profoundly humbling. It's uncomfortably intimate. That the creator saw his creation rebel and riot against him. So he took on their form, wrote himself into their story, into our story, to rescue us and redeem us. And that's what John's telling us in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through the Word, and nothing has come into being that has not come into being without the Word. And then it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, throughout the Old Testament, there's a, a system established that could never deal with sin. But God wrote himself into our story. We see throughout the Old Testament, some of you might read the Old Testament and be like, oh, those poor little lambs. But they're shadowing the coming day where the Lamb of God would come. We read it in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, in these sacrifices, starting in verse 3, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, this is who John is pointing to. He's pointing to this promised one. He's pointing to this Lamb of God. It's not him. He is trying to decrease. He wants to elevate the Lamb of God. Friends, John's declaration is so healing for us this morning. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you don't need to get your life right. You don't need to get your life in order. Dare I say, you cannot... Get your life right or get it in order. No sacrifice, it says, could atone. 
There's no good thing that you can do to get your life right before God. But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's here that we can believe and we can find life and we can find healing that by believing in the Lamb of God, like the provision and the story of Exodus as a shadow, we can find safety and healing and restoration and knowing that the Lamb of God has come. You see, the first character, John the Baptizer, and his declaration, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The story continues, and we meet the second character. So John the Baptizer leads many to Jesus. He leads Simon Peter to Jesus. He leads Philip to Jesus. And then Philip leads this guy, Nathaniel, to Jesus. And I want to I mention Nathaniel for a little bit. He is the second character I want to highlight, Nathaniel. We'll pick up in John chapter 1, starting in verse 43. It says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. See, Nathanael was approached by Philip. And you can imagine, like if you read the text, there's some excitement that Philip has. Israelites in this day, after 400 years of silence, of God not speaking after the prophets, there's this longing for the awaited Messiah, the anointed, the promised one, to show up. And Philip's like, he's here! And so he goes to Nathaniel, he's like, dude, the promised one is here. He's from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel, he's got this cynicism. And we live in a day of cynicism, let's be honest. 2023 is the... the the generation of cynicism. And, and so, though Philip says he's the promised one, he's the rescuer, he's the hope of the world, I love that John wrote Nathaniel's response. Cynical, probably burned a bit. And he says, man, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it's just this podunk town. Like, can anything good come from from Nazareth. I was tempted to throw in like a, a rural city in Georgia or Alabama, but I was afraid that I was going to hit one of y'all's hometowns, and so I decided to keep it gentle. But you know what I'm talking about. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a little to no trust in the institution of the church in 2023. No trust in leadership or in the church, and therefore a dismissal of the claims of Jesus. A study out of Covenant Theological Seminary in Missouri shows a significant decline of people in seminary who actually want to become lead pastors. There's more of an emphasis, there's a study in real time, more of an emphasis towards associate pastors than lead pastors because of the pain that's happening with everything related to leadership and the stigma related to leadership and everything coming out of the rise and fall of Mars Hill and all the wake of pain and difficulty that's happened in leadership. No one wants to take point because there's such a pressurized reality of what this role can be. There's such distrust and some of it's warranted. Fame and leadership 
uh, fame and leadership were never designed to go hand in hand. It was never the heart of Jesus when he created the church. And flesh and, and sin and self-centeredness has, has made a lot of stuff wonky for sure. And we do need a recalibration in the Western church. A new vision of humble servant leadership that looks more like Jesus than looks like a CEO. But many in 2023 feel like Nathaniel. And what Nathaniel needed is what we need as the church we need to return to Jesus and experience him afresh. And what the secular world needs is what the church needs, an encounter with the risen Jesus. This is what Andrew says to Nathaniel, and this is what we so desperately need in 2023. Come and see. That invitation, come and see, was an invitation to Nathaniel, and it was an invitation to us. It's one thing to debate about Jesus. It is another thing entirely to experience him in your heart. The stories of Jesus, his life, his care. Come and see. So minutes or hours later after Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. Nathaniel meets Jesus in this heart-melting moment. I'm not sure if it was at the crisp dawn of the morning, if it was in the hot sun of the afternoon, or if it was in the sunset of the evening, but Jesus approaches Nathaniel, as he always does. Friends, Jesus always makes the first move. Jesus is a pursuer. He's not waiting for you to get your life in order. He's seeking. He's saving. He's welcoming. And the next two statements that Jesus gives are quite spectacular in the life of Nathaniel. The first we read in, in John chapter 1, in verse 7, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him in this moment and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, this is his pursuit, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? We'll pause there for a second. So Jesus speaks to Nathanael. Nathanael has never met Jesus before. And he speaks to Nathaniel. And, and Nathaniel's taken back a little bit. Like, you don't know me. Who do you think you are? You know, again, he's got this rough edge, this cynical edge. Like, who do you think you are? You don't know who I am. He says, there's one within, there is no deceit. And then he goes on in this few words that's just melting my own heart this summer as I've been just reading through it. And in verse, the just continuation, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? In verse 48 of chapter 1, and and Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. We don't know what was happening in this moment. We have no idea. We don't know what happened here under the fig tree. We don't know the moment that Nathaniel surely had. We don't know how lonely he might have felt or how desperately he might have felt or how many tears he might have been shedding under this fig tree. We can assume it was some type of intimate space that he had that no one else knew about. And when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, it was like the walls of cynicism in the heart of Nathaniel were crushed in an instant. And all of a sudden, where his walls are up, this guy from Nazareth just kind of like 
pushing Jesus aside, uninterested in Jesus. As soon as Nathanael hears those words from Jesus, it's as if his heart melted into this posture of awe. Come and see, we read. Come and see the one who knows you and the one who has the power to redeem what he knows about you. See, Jesus knows the warts of your past and your present, and he has the power to actually do something about it. And in that moment, doubts are instantly gone, and we get this second character's declaration, which is this. He says in verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. This means a variety of things. It means you are the anointed one. You are the promised one that was promised throughout the Old Testament. And he's saying that you do have a unique relationship with the Father. And and John's going to continue to disclose that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. He says, you are the king of Israel. This phrase was used here. And this similar phrase was plastered. On Jesus' cross, above the cross, where it says that he was the king of the Jews. See, the promised king whose kingdom was not of this world had come. We read this section of Jesus being king in John 18. I I love, we'll get here in like six months. So if you stick around, we're going to get here. But as a preliminary, so you don't miss that Sunday, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you a little bit about where we're going. This, this, I, this moment that's just like baffles me. You got this pilot dude who's just the boss of that day. Like he was the final say. He was the preeminent dictator of that region. He's assigned Jesus to be brutally beaten 39 times with a whip that had bone and had shards of glass in it. Jesus is beaten to a pulp to try to satisfy the people. And Jesus is brought back before Pilate. In John chapter 18, there's this moment. I'll pick it up in 33. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus, again, in this moment, like just just flipping the script on Pilate, beaten to a pulp, responds to him. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. He goes on, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. 
is the king of the Jews, Nathaniel says. This one is the rescuer. He is the divine son. He has entered into our story. He has become the hero of the story to rescue the people within this story. He's not a mere mortal. He's not just a good teacher. He is God and he has come. And we are invited to come and we are invited to see. We have these two characters, John the baptizer and we have Nathaniel. The story is filled with this raw side, this hopeful side, and we see this invitation that's for them and it's for us, that we can understand and know God and find life in Him. My friends, God has come. The great playwright has written himself into the story of humanity to reveal himself to us and to rescue us. And I cannot overemphasize the invitation that Jesus offers to us to come and see. John Owen, many moons ago, said this. He said, By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passion, and lust. But, but by, by these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. And I've experienced this in my own journey, my journey of porn addiction and shame that came within it. And this breathtaking view of Jesus where he's not looking for you to get your life in order first, but he's pursuing and he's loving and he's caring and he has the power to meet us. There's something so beautiful about God's pursuit that melts the heart no matter how hard hard it is. He has the power to melt the hardest heart, the most cynical heart, and to rescue you from whatever you find yourself in. Friends, the gospel invites us, young and old, to come and see. We long to be known. We long to be cared for. We long to have purpose. We long to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We long for our souls to be taken up with something supreme. We long for beauty. We ache for awe. And friends, Jesus knows you better than you know you. Jesus cares for you with a depth you didn't know you could be cared for. Jesus invites you into a purpose that unravels anything that competes. Friends, your soul was made to be taken up by Jesus. The beauty of the risen Jesus can settle you, free you from anxiety, free you from worry, free you from stress of trying to cling to this world and to trust that he has you and holds you in a way that's powerful. By him all things were created, and by him all things are held together. My friends, as we get more deeply into the Gospel of John, this is not a fable. This is not just some fictional story. God has come. The story is life-altering. The story has an invitation. It's an invitation for us to come and see to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. Some of you haven't forgiven yourself of things in the past. You cling to it. You cannot forgive yourself for something you've done in your past. And you do not know the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, I invite you to come and see the Lamb who 
takes away the sins of the world. For others of you, I mean, you've, you've functioned as the king or queen of your life. And you live in that posture and it puts a weight on you you were never designed to carry. Jesus is the king of this world. And you can relinquish your control. Maybe in an early age as a child, your parents were not around or available and you felt like you had to control things. You had to keep life in order. You had to be a parent because your parents weren't. Whereas a child of God, you can let go of those reins and you can trust Jesus as king. Friends, come and see the beauty of Jesus that we find in this text. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we gather not because we have it together. We gather not because we have arrived, not because we have our life in order. We gather because we're broken and we need to remember the story of God. And this morning, I ask that you would breathe upon our hearts afresh to trust you in a way that we have not trusted you before, to believe again to hope again that you're not done, that you're at work, that you're redeeming, that you're reconciling, that you're healing, that you're cleansing, you're restoring. We thank you that you're not finished. Remind us afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.